When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the European Commission and its vaccine chaos. And you ask us, is it ever right for a left-wing party to propose closing borders? So we're just coming out of a weekend of apparent chaos in the European Commission when they suggested on Friday night that they were going to stop exports of the vaccine from the EU, so from Ireland over the border to Northern Ireland, which sort of flew in the face of the Brexit agreement and casually cast aside the Northern Ireland protocol. They did U-turn, but there's still quite a lot of condemnation from all sides about that move. Alva, you were up on Friday evening covering the ins and outs mm-hmm. of it. What actually happened? On Friday evening, the European Commission triggered Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, so like the Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland, which basically means that you can override any of those provisions. Mm. I say that they triggered it. It's still honestly unclear whether they did or didn't. The point is that it didn't have any meaningful impact and they U-turned on it before it really meant anything. But it was sort of quite widely reported on the EU side and the British side in places like the BBC and so on that it actually had been invoked and then elsewhere just that they were in the process of doing that. But I, I think that's kind of a technicality. The point is that it didn't really happen, but they were seriously planning on doing that for a few hours on Friday night. Even if it had been triggered the supply of vaccines to people in Northern Ireland probably wouldn't actually have been affected because there are no vaccines going from from the Republic of Ireland into Northern Ireland or from the rest of the EU into Northern Ireland via Dublin anyway. And also then the exact nature of the implications for the, the land border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland also wouldn't have been clear or there wasn't one obvious set of consequences it sort of in theory would have meant triggering a hard border on the island of Ireland but article 16 just means that you're overriding those those Brexit arrangements so it means that you kind of have the potential to enact a hard border but it would have depended on the exact actions taken by different governments what that actually would have looked like so we didn't we ended up not really having to deal with that Mm -hmm. because they u-turned on it so quickly it really just the most important thing is the signal that it sent. So the piece that I wrote on Friday night was that basically after so long of, you know, we've had literally years of talking about concerns about the land border between the UK and the EU on the island of Ireland and the really grave implications for peace and stability on this island 
were there to be a return to a hard border and like there have been quite a few points where people have been very very worried about the serious risk of a hard border when we came closer to a no deal brexit for example but i don't think that we've ever been closer to a real hard border on the island of ireland than we were on friday night which is extraordinary and it was because of the eu which was the party in the negotiations for most of the time which was the one emphasizing the need for a frictionless border on the island of ireland because you'll remember that even though in theory both sides completely sign up to that it was not that long ago that the british government was prepared to break international law to potentially not honor the northern ireland protocol and again that didn't happen but then push came to shove and it was actually the eu less than a month after the protocol came into place and um, it was actually the eu that was prepared to completely u-turn on its commitment and at the time on friday night i say it like it was so long ago um on friday i sort of i was quite annoyed because i really think it can't be emphasized enough what an awful thing that is to do to the people of Northern Ireland and and also people south of the border as well. People haven't been having a conversation about this for years. For then that to become a seemingly immediate reality, for it to be condemned by the British government, by the Irish government, by the Labour Party, by the DUP and Sinn Féin and all of the other political parties here, like that wasn't just because it was some sort of idle idea. People have been really, really worried about that for such a long time. And so, I, I mean, I argued that they had surrendered the moral high ground mm. on the border issue after so long. But actually, I thought Stephen made quite a good point in Morning Call this morning, which is that it's become clear subsequently that this was really a decision just taken by Ursula von der Leyen and a few other commissioners and you know the the government of Ireland the Republic of Ireland wasn't kept in the loop it blindsided even people like Michel Barnier and I think that the subsequent reporting suggests that this wasn't really done as an act of malice but sort of more because they didn't know what they were doing and I think I've concluded that that actually doesn't really matter like if anything it's worse if you can do something so serious and risk doing that because actually you don't really understand what it is that you're doing after so long kind of defending the the necessity of a frictionless border on the island of Ireland to do something so serious so carelessly is in itself I think surrenders your right to the moral high ground over Mm. the Irish border. I feel so sorry for for the people of Northern Ireland, because not only have they been experiencing the impact of Brexit from the sort of Irish sea border side, but also they've had this, if you like, a brush with having the border closed with Ireland as well. I think that Stephen's morning call email this morning sums that up, that up quite well, how you say that it suggests that neither side has fully understood the uniqueness and also the sensitivities around that border on the island of Ireland. Yeah, because I think, and you could really see this with some of the the justification, indeed, from talking to people in the Commission. So the kind of, the row between the European Commission, AstraZeneca, and potentially the British government as well, is essentially, are vaccines being made within 
the U27 being used to meet AZ's obligations to the United Kingdom, which the EU feels goes against the letter and the spirit of their contract. And AstraZeneca says, A, well, it doesn't, and B, the matter doesn't arise because that is not happening. Now, the EU has opted to block the transfer of, of materials to, and, and vaccines from the EU27 into the United Kingdom. And I think one of the mistakes some people have made, and I think the mistake, well, my strong understanding of people in the Christian is that the mistake that was essentially made was then at a kind of like officialdom level, it was like, okay, we're doing this. Oh, right. So that means Article 16, which allows you to, well, the other thing that's meant to happen is whichever side uh, triggers Article 16 is meant to tell the British or Irish government first, you know, depending on which which end is pulling the pl- pulling the lever. But, you know, it went through the College of Commissioners. It's pretty clear, I think, that essentially, as Alva describes, no one involved really understood what was they were, as a consequence, also triggering Article 16, right? It was kind of a bit like someone going, close all the doors, and then someone ignoring the big sign on a fire door going, if you close this door, then you ain't going to be able to open it again, right? But Mm-mm. as Alva says, right, it's, it's, you know, it's a very serious issue. And I think what it really reminded me of was throughout the Brexit process, that this refusal on the part of, of many leavers and indeed some Remainers, you know, people say like, oh, you know, the EEA would fix the Irish border problem. So no, it wouldn't. Have you seen Norway's border? <laughs> the land border between Northern Ireland and Ireland is just different from any land border that the EU has with any other nation. And it's very different. I mean, London, Paris is, is obviously not a geographic actually, but but the 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 London, Paris sea borders are, is just very different. And you can do there. There's a bunch of things you can just do in terms of going. Nope, nothing's going to go on that. Then you can't or shouldn't do in as casual a way with the Irish border. The yeah, so the alarming revelation, I guess, is is that when you spoke to um, people, you know, kind of involved in the negotiations on the UK side during the Brexit talk they were much more aware of, you know, well, of course, there's been a degree of regulatory alignment between Ireland and the United Kingdom since the 1920s in order to try and minimise border disruption. They would then have a kind of, often would then say, and that's why the United Kingdom just needs to suck it up and stay in the single market and customs union, which, I mean, obviously, I'm personally quite relaxed about, but, you know, I I, I can accept the argument and there would be no point in Brexit if you did that, right? <laughs> but what I, I found very surprising was I hadn't quite absorbed how much, beyond the people who are intimately involved in the Brexit talks, the same level of kind of like, da-da, I'm a Brexiteer and I'm at the Swiss, Swiss border taking a picture of, yeah, like, <laughs> a fence and going, this seems to work fine. It's just like, perhaps you're wrong, but I'm fairly certain that they're hasn't been any paramilitary board violence on on any of Switzerland's borders with the EU in living memory. So maybe this isn't applicable. We don't know what people do on those skiing holidays, though, do we? (laughs) We do know they spread coronavirus. (laughs) um, There was bio-warfare on the border. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the the reason for, and and obviously we don't need to to go over the the various problems with the protocol and the reasons why I think the protocol is, is, is significantly less durable and desirable than the backstop was, but the reason why there was a backstop, the reason why there is a protocol is just an that border is different and it requires a greater level of sensitivity. It requires a greater level of enforced regulatory alignment. And whatever your sort of national projects are, let's be realistic here, I'm sorry, even if AstraZeneca are being completely disingenuous, they were not going to, in response to the EU sealing up the Paris-London border, be like, all right, lads, let's get a bunch of trucks and try and transport it on the Irish land border. I'm sorry, if, if, if you think that's a serious proposition, congratulations, you are a clown. 
You're acting <laughs> so clownish that you're more clownish than Von Delay and a person too clownish to, to even last as long as Merkel's designated successor as AKK was. I mean, it's just like, it's just a nonsense, a nonsense suggestion. As well as the lack of understanding, the thing I didn't really have room to get into in, in Morning Call is there have already been calls to trigger Article 16 here in the United Kingdom that Boris Johnson has rejected. And one of the kind of, one of the, I mean, I, I think the protocol is nothing but risk factors, but one of the many risk factors in the protocol is that because there's such a poor understanding of why it's there from the UK side, is I think there will continue to be, particularly within Conservative Party politics, a continual drumbeat of, we need to trigger it, we need to trigger it now, oh, look at all of these businesses which can't trade, we need to trigger it yesterday. I suspect, uh, maybe I'm being overly pessimistic here, but I suspect that the really dangerous legacies in a couple of months, I don't think people will be saying, do you remember when some commission officials had a mad one and then like were condemned by essentially everyone in British Irish politics and went, oh God, I'm sorry, we've triggered this by mistake. The story will actually emerge, I think, in parts of the Conservative Party will be, remember when they triggered Article 16 and nothing bad actually happened? That will be the myth. The myth won't be, but it was never actually really triggered and there was never actually a hard border. The myth will be, it was triggered and it was fine. So we can trigger it to stop X, Y, Z happening. As well as the the loss of, of, of the moral high ground. And, and yeah, I think, you know, thank you for kind of both uh, writing on it so well, but also summing it up so well there. I think as well as those really important emotional and political changes, the problem is that I think it, it has rhetorically de-risked triggering Article 16. It hasn't actually de-risked triggering Article 16 in any meaningful way but i just i just find it so easy to imagine in in six months john redwood's twitter feed going nothing bad happened on the 31st of january let's pull that button again and the thing is is that's probably worth emphasizing is that there would be reasonable grounds for triggering article 16 or i don't know necessarily reasonable or, or proportionate but there is definitely a case that has been being made by some people in the dup since the 1st of January, basically, once disruption with the caused by the Irish sea border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, once those effects started to be felt and Northern Irish people can't currently get Percy pigs in Marks and Spencer's here, which isn't the most important ramification of it, but it is one of them. Once those effects started to be felt and, and more significantly due to delays, fresh fruit supplies or whatever coming over the border over the Irish sea border, you know, had rotted. And it was it was having all of these different impacts on businesses here. And so a small group of DUP politicians were already calling on Boris Johnson to trigger it. And like you said, Stephen, he was really clear that the British government wasn't ruling that out, but they didn't think that that would be a proportionate measure yet. But you can already see the reasons because, you know, unionists have, I think, quite legitimate grievances with this arrangement for a border down the Irish Sea for checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland. It's like not been great for Northern Irish businesses and it has already tangibly affected the way sort of life life in this part of the UK is experienced compared with other parts of the UK, just in, even, you know, in terms of the supermarkets, Sainsbury's, M&S, Tesco's and so on, all actually being a little bit different and more limited in what they can supply. Those unionist politicians have had those quite legitimate grievances the entire time. And then once the EU kind of sort of triggered Article 16 on Friday, Arlene Foster did differ from some other politicians here in calling 
for the British government to trigger Article 16 as well. The British government rejected that, and I don't think that that's a serious proposal anymore. But as you say, Stephen, I think it just means that, you know, this was already an idea in the air, and it's not as far off a prospect now because it actually happened, you know, with, within less than a month of the arrangements being put in place. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And our question today is, can it really be in the interests of a left-wing party to be arguing for closing borders? Now, I think this question refers to the vote that the Labour Party has forced for this afternoon, an opposition day motion. So it's a symbolic vote on whether the government should be beefing up its quarantine policy for people coming in from abroad. So they're saying, let's put everyone in hotel quarantine who arrives into this country whereas the government's own policy is just for a certain number of countries on its red list to receive that treatment. And obviously nothing's actually come in yet. They've released a number of these ads, haven't they, that kind of say, why is our border still open? And they've attracted a a bit of controversy. Stephen, do you think that the Labour Party taking the stance is the same as trying to be tough on borders in the immigration sense? Fans of long, well, yes, but also no. But on the other hand, and here's a list of three that will be any series of numbers other than three, are really going to enjoy this answer. Because so yes and no, right? Like, on the one hand, a quarantine at a period when you have an uncontrolled outbreak, not just here, but around the world, is a different measure to border control, right? It just, it just is. The, the arguments for and against it are actually just completely different to whether or not you have what type of border control regime you have in normal times, right? So to take, you know, actually a very real problem with airport quarantine, right, which is that while, yes, there are somewhat mystifyingly still people who are travelling for, you know, work-related reasons, are, you know, their influencers or they just enjoy being, like, in a sunnier place. Some people are travelling and travelling because, you know, they do have work and they can't move. They have, you know, joint custodial arrangements and a variety of other things where, then going, by the way, you also need to pay to be in a hotel on your own at either end is not is not proportionate, lacks in compassion, and there are like important ways you can make quarantine policy work better, right? But that's sort of an entirely separate issue from whether or not one how one feels about border control policy. I think like, you know, on that one, right, this and this is where kind of the kind of no but, right, is 
Now, obviously, the way Labour is choosing to advertise this is broadly, one, they've decided, for whatever reason, to make great play of this, you know, close the borders, vaccinate the teachers, because although vaccinating teachers is, you know, in terms of Labour's proposal, it definitely just does not fix the, the going back to schools. Right? They are, it is A, popular, and B, it's something a lot of Conservative MPs have said. So you just end up with this, like, slightly weird position where it's awkward for the government to go slightly too hard on it because it's awkward for the government to be like, hey, do you know who's stupid? Half my own parliamentary party. But obviously the way they're doing it is to kind of do, you know, hey, look, we're tough on borders. They're not tough. Let's try and transform this traditional, well, this area of, of, of Labour weakness electorally in recent elections into one that is, you know, kind of, because broadly, right, in elections you can you have four options with with something that you are seen as strong on by the voters and they are seen as weak on or vice versa, which is, one, you try and change minds. Two, you try and go, actually, you think this issue is about borders, but it's actually about austerity, either like hire 10,000 more border guards or whatever number it was in 2017, 2019. Or you have the kind of just don't talk about it option. Or you have the, hey, I hear you don't like immigration. Can we interest you in a welfare policy, i.e. the Ed Miliband controls on immigration, which, I mean, among other things, like, I think it's pretty cruel to go, no, you can't claim, claim benefits for a year after you arrive and work in a country. But um, it ain't an immigration policy. It just isn't. It just has nothing to do with the issue at hand. It's like saying, I hear you're worried about immigration, but don't worry, we'll change the colour of your zebra crossing. So, so those are your kind of, your sort of options. And obviously what Labour is opting on, opting on the cure is basically to kind of do the, hey, actually, we're stronger on this policy than they are because we're backing a whole quarantine and we're going to kind of fudge the difference between quarantines and borders. Now, you know, without wishing to get into a protracted argument about Labourism, domestically focused social democratic parties, etc., etc., no left-wing party in the developed world has won without a policy, a border control policy of some kind, right? Just hasn't. In some ways, the answer to, is this ever a good idea, is, well, yes. The point has been pretty adequately demonstrated. Then there's the moral question of like, well, is this a look that the Labour Party uh, or any left-wing party should want to have? Well, you know, I'm not your rabbi. That's kind of your choice. Then kind of question three is, is this approach wise? Like, does it actually achieve the thing that Labour want it to do? I kind of think it doesn't because I suspect, right? Yeah, let's let's play the political tape three or four months of into the future. Everyone who's at risk in the United Kingdom has been vaccinated. And the vaccine is is working its way through, you know, people like us, you know, under 50, not in an at-risk group, etc, etc. And then the question will become, now obviously the UK is the largest donor to COVAX, which is the development programme by developed countries for countries in the global south, and is the longest, is both a founder, but also the only founder to have consistently funded all three strands of Gavi, the global vaccine initiative, right? So it's possible that the nightmare scenario that I'm describing for Labour simply doesn't arise, and both sides just do one of those like, look, we're doing unity. We're vaccinating loads of people outside of our own borders. But I would say the reason why I think this position looks like a very specific bear trap for the Labour Party is that I find it very easy to imagine that in four months' time, Lots of people are going, okay, great, we've vaccinated everyone who's at risk of the United Kingdom. Should we maybe be redirecting our vaccine supplies to places which haven't vaccinated everyone at risk so we no longer have an uncontrolled epidemic anywhere rather than continuing to vaccinate the whole of the domestic population? 
And I don't think that is going to be a comfortable position for the Labour Party to be in. I think if you were to ask, if you asked me to do like a list of risks to the Labour Party, I would say they carry a risk that Keir Starmer will come seen as an opportunist. And I, I would therefore be nervous if I were the Labour Party about the fact that it doesn't seem to me likely that Labour's quarantine policy and it's how we treat the global south and how we treat the rollout of vaccines is not going to change quite drastically once the we've reached the under 50s. And so that's why I think it's specifically a bad look for the Labour Party tactically. Alva, what do you think? Well, I think that's definitely true and already true. What you were saying about how Labour is possibly coming across as less generous towards the global south already in that I'm not sure if this is really reflective of the interviews in their entirety but definitely the news impression from the clips of the interviews that Liz Truss gave on the vaccine rollout versus Rachel Reeves from Labour in the Sunday shows yesterday was very much Liz Truss being very keen to help other countries in the global south and Rachel Reeves giving what seemed to be a much tougher line saying that the, that this wasn't the time. And I think actually, in a way, that's more instructive than however they packaged it with more nuance, because that is how most people will have been interacting with the government and the Labour Party yesterday just by watching the news and not necessarily by watching the full interviews with those two politicians. You are right to say that that is already a risk and and possibly not that comfortable a place for Labour to be in. I do actually think, though, that it kind of makes sense as an opposition policy because kind of on the face of it, closing the borders is the way you would resolve this problem. Labour is even though it clearly tries not to lean into this too much, if you're in opposition, you do have the luxury of never having to really implement these policies. So even if you cost it or, you know, do lots of research to sort of explain how it could in theory be implemented, it's sort of like the burden is not on you to ever have to really do it. And I think it's going to be clearer as new variants emerge. We've Within the past hour or so, the news has already broken that there are instances of the South African variant in the UK through presumed community transmission already, i.e. they they haven't been linked to a known contact from South Africa. So we already have community transmission of the South African variant. And you can see in the future there being examples of new variants coming in that we haven't contained quickly enough because we haven't brought in a hotel quarantine for those countries quickly enough and Labour being able to point back to its policy because it does seem kind of clear that you would mitigate those risks if you if you did that even though it'd be incredibly difficult to implement with its own costs and also even in terms of going back to part one these border issues don't go away when you start talking about the pandemic and quarantine and so on I mean because of the common travel area between the Republic of Ireland and the UK You couldn't introduce hotel quarantine for the Republic of Ireland, probably. It would be sort of tricky around what you do with the EU. I don't know how you would resolve that anyway. So it's kind of one of these policies that I think seems like quite a sensible one for the opposition to be proposing and is a kind of neat solution to some of the issues around the pandemic and and our sort of our exit strategy. And Labour doesn't really have to worry about the tricky rollout of it and actually 
kind of for the reasons you were setting out, Stephen, I think it's probably not that bad a thing to be seen to be being tough on borders because of of your initial fact, which I hadn't realized before that left-wing parties do end up being elected with a policy of border controls and that that's something that a lot of social democratic parties end up introducing to kind of allay the concerns of certain voters. So I think it probably makes sense to be sort of addressing your border image while making what is just plainly a sensible but tricky and kind of idealistic policy. Yeah, I think I I think I agree with both of you to an extent because I do think it it probably will be a short-term win for the Labour Party to have gone sort of quite heavily on this issue because I think the public are in favour of it. As we discussed, you know, the Conservative Party are divided on it. There is pressure from the backbenchers to to introduce a tougher border policy. We know that Priti Patel said she wanted the borders closed last March. Jeremy Hunt, the chair of the Health Select Committee, has said we should do hotel quarantining. And then you also have the devolved governments as well. So Scotland and, and Wales have said that they'd like to go further than than the plans for England for quarantine that that we laid out. So the government is obviously under pressure on this point, and so Labour are kind of pressing that bruise. And then with the arrival of the news that um, the South African variant is in the community now, rather than just being traced back to people who have come back from there, um, that's sort of a very worrying development that that the public will will find concerning. That l- the Labour Party can then point to what it's been arguing over the weekend and say, "Well, why didn't they do this sooner?" So I do think that will probably work in their favour in the short term politically. But I do worry about the framing of it by just saying, "Why are our borders open?" And those adverts that they've put out. I know I'm, <laughs> I keep mentioning them, and obviously it's not very helpful for a podcast audience to to mention something they can't actually see. But they kind of a very broad brush, basic, suggesting that you know the Conservative Party has just let let all these people come into the country, and the Labour Party is wants to do something tougher. I do think that framing it like that and trying to elide you know, what looks like an anti-immigration poster with with the policy that they're proposing, which is obviously very specific and different, is dangerous for Labour in the long term because there's plenty of other politicians who <laughs> have have much more draconian outlooks on immigration and want a system that allows fewer people in than the Labour Party does. So even though it's coming in off the back of two manifestos that called for more border guards and two manifestos that called for the end end of free movement, they're still, by saying or implying that immigration is a problem somehow, they're still doing something that is going to come back and bite them in the long run because they're not going to be seen as the party that is tough on immigration. Ed Miliband when he was leader, tried that. Obviously, there's plenty of other parties that can hoover up the votes of people who think that there are too many people coming into the country. So I think in the long term, it's it's silly to try and frame yourself as trying to do that. So I do think that in the short term, it may be useful for them to have been calling for this, but in the long term, they'll, they'll create problems for themselves, not least because the big problem with the quarantine hotel policy or closing your borders policy during the pandemic is when do you start reopening them because it looks like there's going to be a lot of these mutant strains around for a really long time so what's the exit strategy as Stephen said does the narrative then change which makes the Labour Party look a bit opportunistic and out of touch by the time you want to start opening up again so I suppose as always for Keir Starmer in this situation it is a question of how do you balance political nows or or what some people may accuse as being opportunism with the sort of 
picture of the values and the, and the future of your party that you want to build in time for the next election, which is obviously a few years away. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.